Okay. So, yesterday we got through all the text, and we spoke about how the, the self-sacrifice is really coming from the fear generated by the Chochmah. That the awareness of Hashem, and that sense that the awareness of the absence of Hashem is life itself, right? and Klippa, therefore, which there's no Chochmah, there's no, none of that openness to Hashem is death. Right? So, something that awakens, that touches that part of the person, right? that part of the Jew, there's a, uh, an extreme fear of coming into contact with Klippa because of its, um, with the sense that this is death itself. Right? And so, it's not a fear of the sin of idolatry, it's a sin of the contamination, the impurity of idolatry. How somehow idolatry itself is the denial of what life is. And that's what prompts the person to accept martyrdom or suffering, whatever the case might be, right, is because the alternative, right, coming into contact, even the most superficial sense, with a sense of absolute death, is, is unthinkable for the soul, intolerable for the soul. Right? And that's not really an expression of love, that's a, that's a fear, right? That's a, a sense of, of, of withdrawing backwards, right? A sense of inhibition, a sense of, of feeling constrained, repulsed, etc. Um, as opposed to the love, the hidden love is much more about the desire to be completely subsumed within Hashem to the point that the soul loses any sense of its own distinct identity, right? The analogy of the flame. Okay. Um, what I wanted to do is talk about why it's called the hidden love as opposed to the hidden fear. Why do we call it the fear included in the love? Right? Why are we making, giving the primary name for this drive that comes from Chachma, love rather than fear? So, in general, I want, I'm going to throw this out, I want you to think of this for a minute. In general, where is there a greater connection in feelings of love or in feelings of fear? Love. That was easy? Everyone said that? Love? Why? Warmer. It's warmer? It's warmer in the heart. Okay, well, so remember, remember what I said that in Hasidus, not everything fear is like actual fear, right? For instance, in under fear, we have like awe and other things as well. Okay. So yes, being afraid because something is harmful, whether it's talking about punishment or here, it's the, the impurity of idolatry, right? Whatever the case is, there is a kind of fear which is like there is something bad and the urge to avoid that. Okay? That's one kind of fear. It's not the only kind of fear. Right? Awe, is a kind, awe is a kind of fear because, again, fear ultimately has to do with one's own smallness. Right? It's about the smallness of the self rather than the expansiveness of the self. So if I have five feelings of my own smallness relative to God... Does that necessarily mean I'm on a lower level of connection relationship than if I have feelings of love? So how God is fulfilling and enhances me. Just think about it. Like, like actually think about it for a second. Like, I, I agree that we all understand that like, when I'm afraid of something happening to me, that seems very like um, shallow in terms of a, of, of a connection. But think about like, the idea like, Things that you're in awe of, things that you're 
that you're in wonder of, or you necessarily have a, sh a shallow or less of a deep connection than you do when you love. What are the conditions for you to love something? Right, love is somehow a desire to be closer to something, right? right? We spoke about this before. So what are the conditions for love? Under what condition, what kinds of things are you capable of loving? What kind of things are you incapable of loving? You can't love something you don't understand. You can't love something you don't understand. Does everyone agree with that? No, give me a counterexample. <laughs> well, actually, that's not a great counterexample because the Ram actually says you can't love things you don't understand. Or we'll go with understanding this translation and reference the love of Hashem. Sometimes your partner. Okay. Well, now that's an interesting thing because you may not, you may not understand your spouse. When we say you don't understand your spouse, what is it that you don't understand? Like you don't understand why they did a particular thing. They don't understand why they what like a particular they think, thing. Maybe. The way they think. Okay, but are there parts you do understand? Once are there parts that you do understand? Yes, but not everything. Right, so, so that's going to be messy then because maybe it's the parts that understand that allow you to love them and overlook the parts you don't understand. So or then understanding would still be a condition. Right? I want a clear example of a case where you can love and there's no understanding. That would have to be the counterexample. A baby. A baby. Like the love that you have towards a baby or the love the baby has? Well, I, the love that we have towards babies, I think there's a lot of understanding involved, but, you know. So, I would say that even the love that a baby has, right, there is some kind of minimal level of understanding having to take place. Now, maybe it's based on certain predispositions, like maybe babies are... are you know, hardwired, and I don't like using that in first human beings, but maybe they're hardwired <coughs> to feel a, a, a love and attachment towards their mother, their father, you know, communal elders, caregivers, things like that. And so their mind is trying to like figure out who that is. And at the beginning level, it's like very rudimentary. It's not very it's like conceptual, right? But you know, I think that's probably true. The, the more you think about it, the more you broaden your notion of understanding, and not necessarily something you can articulate in language, but some kind of cognition, some kind of making sense of things on some level. I mean, I have little kids, and it's interesting that as you know, they go from infants to toddlers, you definitely feel more love coming from them, and that probably is correlated with more recognition, more understanding. Now, I would say, though, and this is interesting, whether all love is merely, is based on that, and that's honestly, it's like, here, I give you an example of like the infant, right? The infant is probably somewhat hardwired. And we go back to the adults, right? Maybe we're, as adults, you know, as parents, we're hardwired to love our children. But again, that requires a level of understanding, this is my child, right? Being able to have that frame of mind, right? So there's some kind of level of understanding. Um, despite all of that, that understanding definitely just seems to be a, a necessary thing for feeling love. I'm going to argue that it's irrelevant because the argument I just made would be true about any kind of an emotional state. Human beings don't have any emotions absent cognition. 
right? We have to be aware of something in some way, make sense of it in some way, and then that either creates or elicits emotional responses. So it's not really helpful in understanding love by saying the condition to love is that you understand the thing that you love, because the condition for all feelings is that, right? There is some kind of an understanding. Again, whether it's really like the kind of formal academic kind of understanding you can articulate in words is a separate question. But your mind is definitely doing some kind of cognition in order to like, oh, this person is someone that I should feel love towards, and this person I shouldn't, or this person getting mixed signals. So go back to my question. What are the conditions to love somebody? By the way, it's all true for Hashem as well. To make room for them? To make room for that. Explain. Um, you, you make space for them with your mind, in your heart, in your day, with your time, like the structure. Like you make space for them in your life and in your day. Like How do you do that? Yeah, but you, I'm doing the reverse. I'm not saying if you love your spouse, how does that manifest? I want the reverse. Which is well, how do you get to the love to begin with? Well, maybe you don't make time for them or make space for them in your head or your heart or your day. Let's start with the day. I don't love somebody, and now we want to move to the case where I do love somebody, and making space in my day will result in me loving them. Because in that case, everyone should love their job because they make a lot of space in their day for their job, right? Mm, okay, so now we're in touch with something, familiarity. Okay, that, okay, I'll buy that, right? So I would say then that maybe making space is not really the thing. The thing is just the, that there's some kind of familiarity. Um, if there's something that is unpleasant but constant, will you love it? Okay, so we might need to modify. Familiarity in and of itself is not enough. It's familiarity that is a pleasant kind of familiarity, right? So if I like see the same person every day and we have a casual conversation just out of being nice, but it's a pleasant conversation and that happens over time, I'll probably start feeling stronger feelings of love and attachment to that person. If you're having fun, maybe then Well, what is love? Well, that's the question. You're all, you, take the, you take the subway every day to work and you know, there's a person that sits next to you one day, second day, third day, you have a conversation with them. Not bad. A conversation the next day, the next day, the next day. Nothing about anything deep or any serious, right? And you, this goes on for like two or three years, and one day the person's not there. What, is you, what, what happens to you? You miss the person. Do you miss them? Do you wonder if they're okay? But I might not wish for them to come back. <laughs> well, that's why I go back to you had all that, you've been having that pleasant conversation. Right? The pleasantness part is important. So I would say, I mean, again, one of the things is that we tend to, we tend to use words a lot for their affect rather than for their conceptual meaning. Like, love is like where there's a strong and there's intensity. But like, okay, it's a mild kind of like... In fact, I happen to know people that like had those kinds of experiences. That like... In fact, if you think about it, a lot of friendships actually start out that way. And they kind of organically build from there. What other things make people love each other? Having fun. Having fun together? When they treat you well. They treat you well. What else? When you know you matter to them. When you know you matter to them. Shared interests. Shared interests. 
shared values. And you can talk to them and they don't judge you. Like when they understand. What else? What? Of all those things that we just mentioned. <laughs> okay, so, like, I don't know if that's an additional... I mean, I guess it's necessary because you have amnesia of all those things. You all love the person. There's cases like that where people have a head injury and they don't remember any of their experiences with their spouse and then this person is like in love with you and you're like, you're a stranger to me. I don't know who you are. Like, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just yes, granted, you need to have a memory of all these things. Um, can we like put this in like a nice conceptual category maybe? What do all these things have in common? I will, I will say the question again, and the question contains its answer. What do all of these things have in common? Commonality. Commonality. When you discover some kind of commonality with others, now, there's many kinds of commonality, hence there's many kinds of love, right? Maybe they embody what you aspire to be, right? That's also kind of a commonality, right? There's many different kinds of commonality, right? Um, maybe there's a, there's a commonality of how you complement each other. That, that, you know, where I'm missing, they fill in. And what they're missing, I fill in. So, like, we're like, you know, we fit well together. Like, two puzzle pieces. Right? There's many kinds of... But there's this sense that commonality, fitting together, belong together, right? What if you encounter somebody that you have a very hard time finding anything like that? You don't have shared interests. It's awkward to be, to do things together. Your goals are not aligned. Etc. 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 Are you gonna love that person? Let's remove also any sort of like biological or like or, or, or communal mutual affiliation. Right? So it's not like your siblings or cousins or members of the same shoal, or at least you can like use that. So then what? You're gonna love them? Okay. Because if love is about wanting to be close, there has to be some basis for the closeness. Why should we be close? There's something that means, we, there's something that makes sense for us to be together. Make sense? Good, okay. So now I'm gonna ask my question again. What is more binding, experiences of love? Feelings of love or feelings of, in the other category, the fear category, which contains more things such as awe. Well, there's a limit. What, what can you love about somebody? Here's how I free rephrase the question. What can you love about somebody? The way in which you relate to them, they relate to you, right? What you, the, 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 the way in which you have something in common between each other, that's actually what you love. That's one way, or the parts of themselves that complement yourself, right? or the thing that you both have in common, right? Or that they embody what you aspire to, right? Oh, there's all sorts of things, but like that's what it is. Here's something people don't have in common, okay? Um, I mentioned this in, in, before, but I'll, I'll bring it up again because it's relevant here. Something people don't have in common their lives outside of whatever relationship they have. <laughs> Let's use marriage as an example. Before you get married, you have a life? Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't like your husband to think of you as like 
being reduced to that which he has experienced in his interactions with you and can extrapolate from there and that's it. Like that's the sum total of you, right? Okay, now let's reverse it. Is your husband just what you will have experienced of him and what you extrapolate from that? But what you love is going to be only what? What your experience and what you extrapolate from that experience. So there's an interesting tension there. Can anyone really love all of us? Now we come as package deals, but can anyone really love all of us? Like the, when I feel love towards anybody, I'm, what I'm feeling love towards is the way in which the facet of them I get to see and within that specifically the facet of them that I see that resonates, that clicks, that I find something in common with, right? What about, the, what about the fact that there's stuff about them that I never will see? I never, I, that's the outside of my experience. Can I love that part of them? Maybe yes, maybe no. That's good. Maybe yes, maybe no. So I'll give you the maybe yes first, and then we'll do the maybe no. The maybe yes is, if you realize that, this, that the part that you love is really rooted in another part that you've never really experienced, maybe you never could experience, then you can extend your love, right? This is actually quite common when you talk about like um, deeper relationships. There's a sense that what you are experiencing is only the tip of the iceberg, only the surface, and there's so much more underneath, right? And so, so if, if you sense, let's say, the, the, the goodness in a person, and that's what you love about them, the goodness that you see in them is only like faint glimmer of the actual goodness that resides deep down inside that you may never get to see. Okay. But, but notice how I still have to extrapolate from what I, what I know, from what I feel, from what I've experienced. What about the stuff that is completely other, completely outside of my experience? It's not, it's not the deeper part of what I've experienced. It's just outside of what I've experienced or outside what I find commonality with entirely. Now what? I can't love that because love is desire to be close and there's nothing, there's nothing about that that seems like I want to be close. Now, since we don't like hopefully cut people into little pieces in our minds, we like to say I love the person as a whole, right? And I will tolerate those parts, I will accept that, I will overlook those things, I won't be bothered by them, maybe, but not loving. So there's, this is the honest truth. There's things, there's things about people, whether it's a spouse or our parents or friends or whatever, that we love, we love them because of this, and there's things about the person that we love despite those things. Because love, love has certain conditions. So how do we relate to the other parts? It's not going to be love. So let me ask you a different question. When you get married, I've said, brought this up before, but again, it's relevant here. When you get married, are you going to become more important because you're someone's wife? More important. To more important. To who? More important right now, just without referencing to. Objectively, we become more important. Do you think that's curious? Do you think somehow you become more important because now you're someone's wife? And that's what I'm asking you. No. Your life now is a, is a more significant life because of that? When I'm getting married to King? 
What? When I'm getting married to a king. Then I would still say no. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm a more important person. No. No. Because I'm a queen. <laughs> doesn't make you more, that doesn't make your life, maybe your social position is greater, but that's not the same thing as your life. As a person, you're not a greater person. I, I would hope that you all have the sense that you don't become a more important person. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why is it not obvious? Because we all kiss. What you going to say? Okay. It's me, the married one. Do you think your husband becomes a more important person because he, he, when you get married? Because now he's married? Yeah. <laughs> well, if he's a king. <laughs> no. Why, why no? <laughs> I'm sure this is actually funny. You, you don't see that like the value of a human life does not depend on their marital yes. status. Yeah, no, yeah, no, we see that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I hope you see that. Right? So, like, you know, the doctor's like, we have to save the patient, but the other patient's like, yeah, but that one's not married. Like, this one takes more importance. <laughs> this person value. Like, like. This person's suffering. And this person's also suffering. But they're not suffering as much. But they're married. Their suffering counts for more. <laughs> like, obviously not, right? <laughs> right? I, I realize that we arrange society. We have to have social arrangements. That creates a kind of social significance. I'm, I'm aware of that. But, like, the value of their life, how significant are their hopes and dreams, their sorrows, their suffering? Like, like how is that connected to marital status? <laughs> Should obviously, obviously not true, right? Okay. When, when, when you get married, will you become more important to your husband than you were before? Yes. 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 <laughs> okay. So, what does that mean? Does that mean your husband is delusional? Because he believes that you're more important because you're married to him, when objectively your importance has not increased? Conversely, when you get married, will your husband be more important to you than he was previously? Yeah. Does that mean you're delusional? No. no. What? How do you resolve that? Like, like if, if, if you believe something is increasing importance due to its marital status, when it's really not, like, I don't know, believing things that are false is kind of delusional, right? Especially when you should know better. So why is that not delusional? Importance is relative? Like, who decides what's important? Like, no, 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 this is Judaism. We were very comfortable with saying there's, a, there, there, there's objective standards of these things. Yeah. You know. Maybe because you're not one. No, is a problem. Do you become more important? Or you don't become more important. Both, I think yes. Both. The answer is it's not delusional because there's actually just two different kinds of importance. There's the importance of your life. Okay. And there's the importance that stems from being someone's wife or husband. Those are two different kinds of importance, right? The importance of, of a wife you can't have if you're not someone's wife. And by the way, when you are someone's wife, you only have that importance to them. Because the importance of being someone's wife. So to everyone else, you don't have that importance, right? Then there's the importance of being a person, that importance you have, regardless of your marital status, right? And you can ask which things go into which category. For instance, an interesting halacha. If I am giving tzedakah, should I um, 
give tzedakah to people based on their marital status. All things being equal. Words, the only difference is this one person's married, one person's not married. But otherwise, everything is the same. So should I say, well, the married person deserves more tzedakah? No. no. I mean, maybe practically, because maybe they're married and they have kids, and so it's, it's not just them, it's them and their kids. But set that aside, right? Like, um, now let's reverse this. Or this. What if you have a person who's married and is like, well, you know, there's, there's two people that need help. My husband needs help, and this other guy on the street needs help. Who should I help first? Hopefully your husband. Why? Are married men more important? Right, in other words, because he's your husband, that creates a kind of different kind of an importance, right? So, so there's, there's two kinds of importance here. There's an importance of their life, and there's the importance in who they are to you. Right? Those are not the same importance, right? Now, is it, now, now that we have this established, is it a good thing to be able to see both kinds of importance? So I'm looking at my wife. She's looking at me. She should be, we should both be able to see that we have an importance in being each other's spouse. And we also have an independent importance that has to do with the fact that we're a person, nothing to do with it, right? We want both, right? But here's the thing. The independent importance that we have as being a person is not part of a loving relationship, because there's nothing about loving, right? It's, so, what, so how do you relate to that? You have other words, other feelings, okay? such as maybe respect, honor, right? Validate, right? There's a certain, like, 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 like it, it, the, 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 there's, the person has a reality to them outside of the part that you see, the part that you feel connected, the part that you find something in common with. But if you, if you cut that out and you don't acknowledge that at all, like, then, then like, you're not really, you're not really sure of the full person and yet the love doesn't capture that part. So you need other kinds of things such as respect, such as validation, okay? And maybe other types of emotions. So Chassidus says something very interesting. Chassidus says, in one sense, fear actually connects in a loftier way. Because fear allows you to connect to something that is truly outside of yourself, outside of your own experience, outside of you valuing. Whereas love is always limited to what you can find you have commonality with what you can relate to, what you can appreciate. If you're a bigger person, you can love more. You're a smaller person, you can love less because there's less things you can get. But the other emotions, the emotions that are built on your smallness, they actually have a further reach. <coughs> yeah, I'm going to give you an analogy, although it's not a perfect analogy. Think of the difference between seeing and hearing. Seeing is much more vivid than hearing, right? But that vividness comes at a cost, which is you need a direct line of sight. The minute there's something in the way, you can't see anymore, right? Where's hearing? Even there's something in the way. So I can hear what's going on in the next room, even though there's a wall. Right? So there's a range of hearing that seeing doesn't have. Seeing is much more limited in that respect. There's trade-offs, in other words. I don't mean to say they're exactly the same. So what Chassidah says, if you want to talk about the, the totality of someone else and your connection to them as them, love is not really the mode. On the other hand, without love, do you really feel close to somebody? 
Love is, love is, what do you say? That love are all those feelings of a desire to be closer. If you don't desire to be close to somebody, you probably don't feel that close to them. <laughs> like in an emotional way, I'm saying. Yes? So, there's advantages to loving experiences, and there's advantages to these other kinds of experiences. Okay, so now let's take this back to the, the, the love that comes from Chachma. And they said the love that comes from Chachma is a desire for what? It's a desire to, to have Hashem's presence more in your life. It is a desire to go to heaven. Like, what is it? Right, every love is a desire for something. What is the, the love that comes from the Chachma in our souls? Desire for what? Truly to be one with Hashem, right? So that all distinctions between you and Him are dissolved away, so you're not identified anymore as a separate entity whatsoever. Okay. Well, how much do you, do you see yourself as having in common with Hashem on that level then? If you love Hashem so much that you want to totally lose yourself in Hashem to the point that you have retained no vestiges of your own identity as a separate being whatsoever... How much do you find that you have in common with Hashem? How much sense of how much of a sense of you and Hashem having something that binds you together that makes it make sense that you should be together? Is that very small, very strong? Very small. Why? I mean, I couldn't compare myself to Hashem. I would say the opposite. It's very strong. Think about it. What do you want if you feel this love? What do you want? To be, to have no distinction between me and Hashem. So how do you see yourself? As one. And all the things about you which are not one with Hashem, do you really see them as yourself? Right? You see what I'm like, like, like if you love Hashem so much that all you desire is to be subsumed, lost in, within him to the point that there's no, nothing that differentiates you from him? That means you have identified completely with him. You don't have... You, it means even, even before that desire is fulfilled on a certain level, you already cannot identify yourself with the things that make you separate. Like you're, you're, you're alienated from all those parts of you. Those aren't you to you. Right? Like that was an example of the flame. Right? The flame is always flickering. It's, it's never settled. It's never comfortable being its own being. It feels awkward. Most of us don't want to get too close because as close as we want to be, right, there's, that, there's also parts of us where we don't have something in common and if we get too close, those parts would end up getting erased. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. Love is very limited because love is based on that overlap of like the Venn diagram between two people, between the lover and the beloved. Now what's interesting in this love is how strong is the overlap between the flame and the source, between the Chachma and God. It's a little overlap, it's a big overlap. Everyone knows what a Venn diagram is, right? How strong is the overlap? What does the soul want to preserve of itself? Nothing. Let's, let's use an example. Let's say you're a mother. Okay? And let's talk about like normal life, nothing extreme circumstances, okay? How much of yourself overlaps with your children? Is it all? What? The majority of it. The majority of it? 
Why do you say majority of it? Well, because everything you do after you have children is somehow connected back to when you this for child. Have you ever asked uh, anybody who's not your mother about that? Mm-hmm. Who has children? <laughs> and they say, yes, of course, everything is for my children. Yes, but that has to do with a practicality thing. People who have young children, I speak from experience, they are very demanding in terms of practicalities. People who have teenage children are very demanding in terms of emotional things. So there's a lot of demands being made. Right? Um, but I would never measure something based on simply how, much, how demanding it is and what is required to meet those demands. Um, anyone here want to be a victim for a moment? I can pick on you? Sure. Okay. Do you have any personal passions? What would be one, for example? Flowers. Flowers. Okay. Now, if your child, um, you have a child, and the child um, is allergic to flowers, I'm not asking what you would do. I you know, understand, like, your child's allergic to flowers, you're going to have flowers. Would that feel like a loss? That you couldn't have flowers in your house because your child is like seriously allergic to them. Yeah, but I'd be okay with it. That's fine. I understand you'd be okay. The mom's supposed to be okay there, right? But it would feel like it would feel like a loss, right? Yeah. Because there is a part of you which doesn't which which like <laughs> is about the flowers and, and, and you might say that relatively speaking, I'm willing I'm 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 willing to let go of that part on a practical level, but deep down it's still part of me. I'm not like I'm it's not like, you know, well, I don't care about flowers anymore. Of course, I still care about flowers. Moreover, you're still going to probably try and find ways to ha- have the flowers in your life in a way they don't. Right? So what you're doing is like managing the conflict between two parts of yourself. The part of yourself that cares about flowers and the part of yourself that cares about being with your child, right? And, and you know what? At some point, you'll probably say, you know, the child is the one that's going to have to like, give up. Like, for instance, it's a child is an adult. And the child's like, well, I want... You know, I want to be able to go into every part of your house because otherwise we don't feel like we have a deep enough connection. You're like, you probably say like, you know, I think it's reasonable that like, you know, I can have like a flower garden and you can come over and spend time in the living room. Like, right? And if that's not okay with you, I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't like, right? So you, you, you retain a strong sense. Like there's parts of me that have really nothing to do with this. And like, you know, and you weigh them, you know, you know, obviously if, if the health of the child is at risk and the child is younger, they need you around all the time, the houses are small, houses are bigger, all these things, factors matter. But like, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden everything disappears because now I am, right? And being able to deal with that in, in a healthy way helps people maintain their sanity and people not, not because you really, <clears throat> see, you see the other, what about marriage? It's going to be the same thing with marriage. It's the same thing with friends, it's the same thing with every relationship, right? But we're now saying the love that comes from Chachma is not like that, right? There's nothing that the soul feels attached to. Even like getting to experience being in Hashem's presence is not really it, right? As we said before, it's really about being completely lost and subsumed within Hashem. Good? Okay. So because love, unlike fear, is based on the degree of commonality with the beloved that you sense, if you love to the point that all you seek is to dissolve completely in the beloved and retain no vestiges of your separate self at all, that means what do you see yourself as having in common with? What do you see as, oh, the overlap between you and the beloved as absolute, right? 
You identify totally with them. You don't identify anything, within the, anything distinct in yourself. And if there is, that stuff just feels like baggage to be gotten rid of, right? So that's what the hidden love is like. What about the fear? Let's go back to fear. Now let's talk about fear as fear for a moment. When you're afraid of something, okay, you don't want, that means that, you, it means that there's a sense that something could be harmful, right? Right? The, the condition for fear is the sense of potential harm. If you don't sense potential harm, you can't be afraid, right? That's why you could have an irrational fear. An irrational fear would be feeling fear when there is no impending harm, right? Or the degree of fear is not proportional to the degree of impending harm, right? What is it, so let's unpack that. What does it mean that something could be harmed? What does it mean to harm something? Like, if I drink this coffee, am I harming the coffee? If I close the safer, am I harming the safer? If I crack my knuckles, am I harming my knuckles? Like, like at what point does something constitute harm or not? Damage. Okay. What, how do I know if something is damaging or something? Let me ask you a different question. What makes something in, sick, right? So, you know, this, this person's sick. The how do you know if something is a sign of sickness? The results. It's not working the way it's supposed to. There's a way it's supposed to be. Damage, sickness, are very hard to answer if you're not going to already have a sense of how the thing is supposed to be. A car is supposed to work a certain way. If you do something that makes it so it can't work that way, you're damaging the car, right? So what would be damaging to the body if you're doing things to the body that make it the body can't work the way it's supposed to? But then you need to have, that means there has to be a sense of the way it's supposed to be, right? It needs to have its own kind of integrity of what it is, how it's supposed to work, and then we can talk about causing it harm, causing it damage, right? Right? Because really at the end of the thing is that the fear against harm is the idea of preserving the way the thing is supposed to be. So it has a sense of how it is supposed to be. Can you have fear like actual fear, I don't mean here awe. Actual fear if you don't have a sense of how you're supposed to be. Like for instance, if a person has a sense that I'm supposed to feel safe, or sorry, let's use a, let's use a more common. person has a sense that I'm, that I'm supposed to live, right? And now there's a sense that something might kill me, they could feel fear, right? What if the person didn't have a sense they're supposed to live? Would they feel fear? Mm-hmm. If death was impending? No, because like, oh yeah, I might die. And what's the problem? I'm not supposed to live. By the way, one of the ways that people make peace with impending death is Sentence? accepting that they're not supposed to live any longer. And, if it, and now, I mean, how effective that is, we can debate, but to the degree to which a person can actually accept that they're really not supposed to live any longer is the degree to which there's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, you're gonna, the person's going to die, but, like, okay, but, but it's not harm if it's not going against the way it's supposed to be. So you have to have a sense, I exist, I exist in this way, and I'm supposed to exist in this way, and now things can be a harm to me. Yeah. What would it mean to be afraid of severing your relationship with God? That would mean you'd have to have a sense that you're supposed to have a relationship with God, right? And that things could damage it, and now you're afraid. So if the godly soul is afraid of coming into contact with idolatry, what does that mean? It has a sense that it's not good for 
It's not good. What? No, 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 no. There's no relationship here on this level, right? We spoke about that. There's no relationship. Relationship is too developed. It's not how it's supposed to be. The soul has a sense. It's not supposed. To, it, it, it's really not supposed to be in contact with idolatry, like really, really not, right? Because idolatry is basically like death for the soul, right? Okay. But what's implicit in that fear? A sense of the soul as its own entity, isn't it? Think about it. What is the soul afraid of? That it will come into contact with idolatry, which is death for the soul. So the soul is afraid of that it won't be the way it is supposed to be. Does that sound like it's totally lost any sense of itself? Or it has a kind of sense of itself there. See what I'm saying? Like, like if you love to the point that all you want is to be completely dissolved, completely subsumed in, into Hashem, you don't have any separate sense of yourself. But if you're afraid of coming into contact with idolatry, you clearly have a sense of yourself. Your sense, I'm the kind of thing that dies when, you know, when, when I come into contact with this, with this, with this, with this impurity, right? And so there's this fundamental self-preservation to not let it happen. Now, maybe you're that kind of thing because you have this awareness of Hashem as the ultimate truth, fine. But there is some kind of your sense of yourself as an entity, or as the same Hebrew, as a Metzius. In other words, where is there more, I'm going to use this word, where is there more ego than the desire to be subsumed within God or the desire to not come into contact with the, or, or the fear of coming into contact with the impurity of idolatry? The latter. Because there's a sense, I can't, do that. If I do that, I will be dead. There's a lot of I there, right? And the I is a distinct thing. Now, mate, I say, well, why is that the thing that I sense as death? Okay, because what defines me is the chachma. Fine, good. So it's, a, it's not really ego. But relative to the love, in other words, where do I see the absolute truth of chachma more revealed? Where is there a pure manifestation that the truth of chachma, that chachma gets that Hashem is absolutely all there is? That, in the love. Because in the love, the soul identifies so much with Hashem, it, it seeks nothing other than to be lost in that truth, right? Whereas in the fear, the soul is preserving itself. So the fear is not really a, 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 a clear manifestation of Chachma, a true manifestation of Chachma. It's a consequence of Chachma. As much as the soul is... is, is, is at its core has this chachma, the soul sees idolatry as death and therefore the soul can't come into contact with it. Okay, fine, but there's this notion of preserving itself. And in as much as it's preserving itself, that's not really reflecting the truth of the chachma. So which emotion would I really have to say is rooted in the chachma more directly, the love or the fear? Well, chachma is the awareness of the absoluteness of Hashem. What's more rooted in, what's a clear manifestation of that desire to be completely lost in Hashem? Or the intolerance of, to, of coming to contact with something that denies Him? Desire to be, because, because there's nothing left of you. There's nothing about you that's distinct. In fact, all you, even the desire is not felt as your own desires we spoke about before, right? Even that gets kind of consumed away. Whereas the fear, there's a very strong sense, I can't do this, this, this is dangerous, this is, this, is, this, is, this, is going to, this is going to kill me. There's a me that could be killed. So really the fear is just an outgrowth of the love. Fear is 
the fear is just an outgrowth of the love. How does that come in? Like, why isn't the love? Like, because, because, what's the core of the soul we're saying is Chachmas, is so absolute awareness of Hashem. If the soul is so absolutely aware of Hashem, what's the only thing the soul could desire then? Hashem. Not a relationship with Hashem, which preserves yourself, but Hashem. What does it mean to desire Hashem? To be completely subsumed within Hashem, right? Okay. Now, if that's what defines the soul, what would be death for the soul would be something which is the denial of Hashem, which is the impurity of idolatry, right? But notice how we now have to say the death of the soul as if the soul is a thing that could be harmed. So in the fear is like almost a step removed from the Chachma. It's, if, I, if what defines me is Chachma, then what would I be afraid of? And there's a preser- what I'd be afraid of is what, what would threaten myself? So there is a sense of self that's being held on to. Whereas if I, what defines me is Chachma, what I desire, I would desire to be subsumed to Hashem. So then what, what am I holding on to? I'm holding on to nothing of myself. Which is what Chachma is really all about. So... The truth, of, the truth of the Chachma is clearly revealed in the love. It's only, it's not really clearly revealed in the fear. It just justifies the fear. It motivates the fear. But it doesn't really, it's not really revealed in the fear. The fear is, a, is kind of a consequence. A being who is defined by something is afraid of the thing which is the death of the thing they identify with. But fear is, a, fear is self-preservation. Which actually leads to an interesting observation. Is it easy, relatively speaking, to experience the fear hidden in this love? What did the Alter Rebbe say? Is it easy or is it hard to experience the fear? He didn't say it right here. I have to go back and think about it. What does the fear motivate? The fear motivates what kind of behavior? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. Is martyrdom an easy thing to achieve for a Jew or a hard thing to achieve for a Jew? Hard? Why you say it's hard? Because you haven't done it recently? Yeah. <laughs> have you been in a situation where it's warranted? Okay, so, that, so you have to, right, like, thank God we are not in the sample size for evaluating whether it's easy or hard, right? Okay? But that was the ultimate whole point, that we find that martyrdom tends to be a pretty universal phenomenon that cuts across levels of religious devotion, scholarship, right? Why? Because it's pretty easy for a Jew to martyr themselves, right? when that's what the situation is. So the fear is apparently something, again, when it's that kind of situation, it's relatively easy for this. It's not a big achievement in your spiritual growth. You know. What about the love, to reveal that love? To actually have an experience the only thing that you desire is to be subsumed within God and there's nothing else that you feel any attachments to at all. How many people experience that in Jewish history? What? Siddiquim, right. Which are rare. How many people experience fear? Every Jew that ever has encountered martyrdom. It's not so many people. It's a lot of people. Yeah, but that's that's because Baruch Hashem, we live in a situation where that's not happening. Right. But but again, we're not part of the set. We're not the people need to be evaluated. In other words... If you look at all the Jews that are put in a situation where martyrdom is a viable option based on the circumstance, Jews, without to say al in the majority of cases, regardless of prior religiosity, will manifest martyrdom. Okay, because the fear apparently is very easy to trigger. The love, only the tzaddikim have it. Okay, and how do they get that? 
other than special souls. Like, do you just wake up one day and like, poof, you get to be a tzaddik? Or do you do a lot of spiritual growth and work to get to that place and access that part of yourself? So this is interesting. Why is it that to experience the fear is much more accessible and to experience the love as love, as desire and as yearning is actually very, very hard. We all have this hidden love, but again, we experience it in, as it's clothed in exile, right? And when martyrdom, we're not really experiencing the love as love, we're experiencing the fear that follows from that love. Why is that? Why is it easy to experience the fear and hard to experience the love? Fear doesn't like change your character, and love does. What do we say that the key difference here between this love and this fear is that if you love Hashem, you want to be totally subsumed within Hashem. Because we have big sense of self. Right. So the fear doesn't completely negate the sense of self. Right? It's about preserving. So what you discovered is there's, I thought my sense of self was, you know, my job. It turns out, or my physical existence. But it turns out the deepest part of my sense of self is my Jewish self. And this is death for my Jewish self. Okay, but there's still like some sense, the, 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 the sense of self and self-preservation doesn't, like that, that's still there. But if you're going to love Hashem so much that all you want to be subsumed in Him, can there be any sense of self-preservation left in you? And to get to that place is going to require a lot of spiritual work and growth, something that most people are not really going to do or even capable of. In other words, if I want to talk about this drive in us for what it is, love is the better name. But the way most of us experience it is not in its pure form as love, but in it, it's this ancillary form of how it affects our sense of self-preservation. Right? When a person is experiencing martyrdom, they're not experiencing desire for God. They're experiencing self-preservation. And it's a lot easier to experience self-preservation than it is to experience a desire that makes you perfectly willing to shed and forego other things in your life. That's a much harder thing to do. So what should this, what should this feeling called? It should be called love, because that's really what it is. It's rooted in this complete identification with Hashem, and therefore the desire to be subsumed within Him. But if I want to talk about how it's manifest in you know, martyrdom, I really can't talk about the love dimension of it, because it's not the desire that's driving martyrdom, it's the fear that's driving the martyrdom. So we call it the fear which is contained within the love. Love is really what this is about, the fear is contained in it. Now, is this the same of it in that every time we talk about love, there's always a fear contained in it? Yeah. What? Always? Okay. Let's think about this. A person who's afraid of losing money, how do they invest? Risk-free. They try to minimize their risk because they're very comfortable with risking their, their money, right? Why do people engage in very risky investments? Impulsive. But what are they yeah. trying to achieve? Want more. They want more what? I wouldn't say thrill, but they want more money. They want more money. So, can we say that they, broadly speaking, love money? And that drives them to take risky investments? But fear of losing money would drive them to? To invest safely and do we have people that one of those they feel and the other one they don't feel 
Right? Words, you might have a value for money. That doesn't necessarily mean that you feel a love of money. You might value money, and therefore you want to be careful you don't lose what you have, right? And you might have value for money that ends up being a desire for more money to the point that, you be, that you're actually quite reckless. Um, there's a whole genre of literature of people who do stupid things in the pursuit of love. Why do people do stupid things to pursue love, even at the risk of losing those they love? Because does love always necessitate that you have a corresponding fear? It doesn't work like that. Not every time you love something, you always have fear it's loss or fear losing it. It's not really true. And by the way, the reverse. If you fall into feelings of fear, you, that comes going to come at the expense of, of having any love. It's not really the same. I mean, but when you identify with something as your life itself, well, I, since identifying with something is a kind of seeing something you have in common, that there's a strong sense of love in that. And when you identify something as, as, as your life itself, then whatever notion of self-preservation you have is going to kick in automatically. Okay? This explains something very, very interesting. Um, have you noticed that some people are very afraid of um, certain things, like, say, being called out for um, making a mistake, and other people are less afraid? Why would that be? Why would somebody be very afraid of having their mistakes pointed out and other people less afraid? Self-preservation. What? Self-preservation. Right. So the fear is definitely, very often it's a self-preservation thing that's Mm -hmm. kicking in. So the question is like, and if the teacher points out that you're doing something wrong, why does that feel like self-preservation is at stake? I mean, okay, so I point out that you did something wrong. You're not dying. What if you feel, rightly or wrongly, that acceptance of your behavior is like what your life really depends on? Then the idea that people might see you as doing something wrong feels like you're putting your life in danger and then you might be very uncomfortable doing things where you risk making a mistake, right? What if you feel like you're, you know, as important as your behavior is, like your, your life is not, your life doesn't depend on people approving of your behavior, then, I mean, it's not that you want to do things wrong and have them pointed out, but you're still going to be more comfortable taking a risk and, and you know, and getting feedback, right? That makes sense? Okay. So, identification with something, that when your life and identification get mixed up together, psychologically, then the, then the fear of self-preservation kicks in around that thing. This is the same idea we're saying. Because as a result of Chachmah, the soul identifies so strongly with Hashem, such that the soul seeks to be dissolved in Hashem. That level of identification with Hashem, which is the essence of this hidden love, necessitates that self-preservation kicks in around the antithesis of God, which is idolatry. But the minute our feelings of love are not, we identify our very lives with something, very being with something, then we can feel love without necessarily you know, having fears. And we can have fears about things that don't necessarily like, mean that we have strong desires about things. Defining martyrdom as an act of fear feels like, like which line of self-preservation are you speaking about? Because I understand about preserving the... Like, the life of the soul. It's preserving right. the life of the soul. But over that's the, also love because... It's conceptually rooted in love, but it's not experienced as love. 
That's the ultimate point. The drive comes from... Right. In other words, it is... In other words, if you are aware of Hashem, Chachma, in such a way that you absolutely identify with Him, so you, such that you desire to desire nothing of your own existence, i.e. the love, then it follows the thing that you would try to preserve about yourself, right, is that you shouldn't come into contact with anything which denies God. So what you actually experience in martyrdom is a kind of self-preservation fear centered around the point of commonality of a God that's, the, that's in the love, which falls from the Chachmah. So if I want to talk about the emotion conceptually, I call it the hidden love. But if I'm actually trying to explain what's happening in martyrdom, what the person is experiencing is the fear that follows from that love. But again, not every love necessitates a fear. You could have lots of love for money and do a lot of risky business ventures and feel no fear of losing money. When does love necessarily produce fear is when the love is the kind of love of complete identification with. When I have complete identification with something, then things that contradict that thing feel like death. And so my self-preservation just kicks in. And so what's happening in martyrdom is the self-preservation of the soul is overriding the self-preservation of the body. That's all that's happening. Um, it's a good question. So the Zohar uses the example of children to their parents. But I have to make an important caveat. That's, that's only a good example um, in the Zohar. What do I mean? Um, there's the, there's the, the idea of something. There's the idea of something, and then there's the um, and then there's the reality of something. They're not the same thing. So I'll start with a simple example. Um, parents um, are supposed to parent their children based on what is good for the child, right? Now, we all understand that parents don't always do that, right? So we have a difference in the reality of it being a parent and the ideal of being a parent, yes? Okay. So here's the thing. When the Zohar and Kabbalah in general brings analogies, those analogies are from the realm of the ideal, not from the realm of the real. So whenever you have an analogy about like a father and a son or a husband and a wife in Kabbalah, we're talking about in th- those things in the ideal. Okay, so now we have to think about this for a second. Um, a father and a son, what is the basis of their connection? What is their point of commonality, in other words? What's the basis for the love of the son to the father? The son came from the father. The son came from the father. And if we be a little more precise, the son doesn't just come from the father, but the son is in some sense derivative from the father and a continuation of the father, a furtherance of the father, right? This is the idea behind inheritance, right? Okay. Now... In the reality, the son becomes a separate person, and therefore, ultimately, every person prioritizes themselves over others, um, and this is not just because of ego, it's actually a rule in halacha, of the, the, the notion of self-preservation, because you become a separate person, okay? But if we like, set that thing aside, and we deal still in the realm of, of, of spirituality, where everything is defined by its connections, then what is a son? A son is just a derivative of the father. So, would you chop off your arm 
to save your life? If the arm had an opinion, what would the arm say? No. No, the arm would not say no. The arm would say yes. Why would the arm say yes? No, it just had the arm was self-aware. It wants to be its own Because the arm says, well, well I'm, I'm just your arm. Like, there's no, it's conceptually incoherent for me to say, don't chop me off. Like, 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 I am nothing without the person, right? So it's either the person without me or nothing. Well, that makes no sense, right? Like, because my whole being is just, is just, you know, an aspect of the person, right? Of course, arms aren't self-aware, right? Okay, so then in, in as much as a son were to have that sense of themselves, which again, arguably you can't really have once you become your own physical person, but if you took that away, then what would a son feel about relative to their father or mother? That since their life is derivative from their parents and their life is a furtherance of their parents, whose life therefore necessarily should take priority in that way of thinking? And therefore the Zohar says that a, that a son will give up his life merely to redeem his parents from captivity, not even to save their life. And then the Rebbe points out, though, that might be true in the realm of the ideal, but in the realm of the real, like halachically, that's actually not true. And you're not allowed to do that because we have to deal with the fact that as an embodied person, you are your own separate being. And, and that takes a certain priority according to Torah. So arguably, there is no nothing in the in our physical lives that has that kind of a thing. I mean, the altar bit used the analogy of a flame, right? I just use an analogy. You can use an analogy of like a father and, and a son in the ideal. You can talk about like a, a branch and a, and a tree, but it's actually like not possible to have any kind of our normal human because I am a person in myself with my own sense of being and my own experiences. And then I reach out and become aware of others. And even those fundamental relationships, like an infant to its mother, Works that way. Infants aren't born feeling love towards their mother. They're hardwired to love their mother, but they have to become aware of their mother through, through I mean, basic experiences like touch and then eventually facial recognition, right? And through that, they develop some kinds of like attachments. And, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, so arguably, there is nothing in the real world that loves in this way. And therefore, nobody's sense of self-preservation kicks in because of something that denies something other than themselves. It's a very unique thing. And the Altarist point here, this all exists inside all, each and every one of us. We don't have to do anything to achieve it. It's there. So we've answered the questions. The hidden love is A, an inheritance because it comes from Chachma, which we all inherit. Right? Its origin is Chachma, the innate awareness of Hashem's absolute truth that we have rather than Bina, our understanding that we develop of Hashem. Right? Its desire is to be completely subsumed in Hashem because it stems in a complete identification with Hashem. And it entails fear because if you completely identify with something, then self-preservation kicks in not to come into contact with the, with, with the denial of that thing, which would be like what you would sense as your death. Right? Again, think about physiologically how we were repulsed by things that seem to be have death in them, like spoiled food and stuff, rotting stuff. And that exists in each and every one of us. And it manifests, and at least on that level, it manifests quite easily when prompted, such as martyrdom. And it's that sense of awareness where our, where our, where our sense of faith in Hashem comes from. Now the altar, is what he's going to do is he's going to stop talking about this and he's going to devote a few chapters to talking about the truth of God 
what, what, is, what is the truth of God? What is idolatry? Really understanding those things and then tying them back to Torah and mitzvahs. And then what you can do is say, well, if I would die rather than come into the slightest contact with idolatry because that threatens the very self of my being, right? It's death of the soul. And I come to understand that in essence, every sin is idolatry. And not, not, a, not, a, not a rhetorical way, but in like a very true way. In fact, it's even worse than idolatry. Then, even though I don't feel the sense of self-preservation kicks in, right? I can still try to live with an integrity that I know that that's what would happen if I were more in touch with myself and therefore I should choose to live that way and that gives a person the strength to be motivated to not sin. And then you can go on to, from there to the desire to be subsumed within Hashem and mitzvahs. And that's where the altar is going to take this. Not that you're supposed to trigger martyrdom in yourself because you're not going to do that. Um, we have a bit of an issue, which is the next chapter, chapter 20. And we have how many classes left of Tanya? This week we have questions and answers. Next week we have two. The week after that, we have two. And the week after that, 